Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Radio, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm Ahmed Yusuf, your host for this afternoon's show. And before we begin, we'll be doing an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet. And pay our respects to their elders, both past and present. This land was never ceded, and the process of colonization, occupation, and incarceration that began and genocide that began over two centuries ago continued to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs, popular culture, with a little bit of a twist, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues of the week in Australia. What's going on, people? This is Akala, and right now you're listening to The Race Card. Big up. How hard is it for you to find makeup? Really hard. Um, I have attempted maybe maybe twice a year since I was about 15 and nah, nada, nothing. It is really hard to find makeup. It's just like a 50 shades of beige situation, every single price line that I've ever been in. Just like three whites and then a brown and then a darker brown and that's it. I mean, it's mostly foundation, but even for like lipstick and stuff, it's like you buy a thing that you think will be fine for your lips and then it turns out you can't even see it and you're like, why did I spend on this nonsense like why long story short it's very difficult uh, it's really hard like I can't get anything that matches my skin tone it's really bad Hi everyone, you're listening to The Race Card and today I'm talking to Chanel from The Pastels about the beauty industry and vlogging as a woman of colour so first Chanel who are The Pastels? Um, the pastels are three gal pals from Australia who love making videos about beauty, fashion, and lifestyle. Oh, I love it. So, um, why did you guys decide to start vlogging in a group? Um, well, we didn't really think about it like that, but, like, as it's sort of a dynamic, but we, we just started vlogging as a group because we're just friends. So, it just felt more fun that way. But also, I feel like our group dynamic is really cool and sweet because you know like Clara and Annabelle they're really really into beauty and fashion and I am also but I also come in with a videographer sort of lens Mm -hmm. so it's pretty cool I think that's that's also why we're in a group and we're vlogging as a group because if it was just myself then I wouldn't know anything about creases and (laughs) eyeshadow and stuff yeah I, I still would know yeah yeah, I mean, like, do you feel like that, um, the fact that it's, like, three of you, do you feel like that, like, broadens your audience at all? 
Yeah, I think it does. I think it really does broaden our audience because we all come, um, all three of us come from like different sort of backgrounds and then therefore we come in with our different like experiences and how we um, apply makeup and how, you know, because then other girls who do look like me and Clara and Annabelle could really profit profit oh my goodness what sort of sorry (laughs) what sort of word choice what is this um but yeah it could really like benefit there you go yeah Um, benefit from it yeah yeah totally inspiration Mm, I mean I guess is your audience mostly like young women of color or um I would like to think so but I also like to think it's sort of broader than that because I feel like we appeal to anyone who's interested in beauty and like wants to take inspiration from looks but I feel like we also appeal to anyone who likes sort of quirky weird editing (laughs) yeah like I make I'm like I'm sounding so conceited right now no I'm joking but like I don't know I feel like our vlogs or whatever are look sort of different so it kind of like I've I've heard from people who aren't into makeup at all still like watching our videos because it's filmed interestingly it edited interestingly and also I feel like people like our personalities as well so there's that aspect as well so if you don't you're not into beauty or or you could be into beauty but like if you're not into all that stuff but you do like some personality then you could watch us yeah totally because I I guess like YouTube it's like conducive to like the sort of like cult of personality thing Um, yeah and that kind of stuff and you know what the pastels are doing is totally like in that vein I guess like also, even in terms of beauty, your looks are really creative and interesting. I guess, like, do you think that's important? Do you think it's, like, it's important for, I guess, everyone to, like, have beauty vloggers that are, like, people and they're, like, they have interesting ideas and it's not just about, I guess, trying to fit a standard? Oh, yes. I definitely feel like that is – yeah, I really <laughs> kind of put it into words. But, yes, I definitely think that creativity in makeup and – beauty is really what makes beauty and makeup fun Mm. and just something that um people could own because I feel like makeup was not originally but it was mass marketed to be um for the consumption of men I'm guessing in this heteronormative word world (laughs) but um, but yeah so I think that being creative and just like especially as women of color like what looks were we told to be look creative? Like I know for um Asian women, it was more to look more demure and mm. subtle and natural. But like, if you want a line that lower lash line, do it. Even if it makes so called your eyes smaller, who cares? Be creative. You know, do what you want. Like what you like. And I think it's just yeah. I think it is important. It yeah. is important. I I guess like what you just said about like the like lining your lower lash line, like. That's really interesting because, you know, a lot of beauty in terms of like what it's generally seen as is like about trying to make your face fit more of a sort of Western Eurocentric ideal. And Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I don't know whether you agree, but like the pastel sort of like deviate from that. It's not, you know, a bunch of women of color, you know, using these looks that make you look sort of more white. It's just like, do what's fun, do what you like. Yeah, definitely. Like Annabelle's putting pearls in her uh, or <laughs> you know her face like yeah you're not trying to look more human you're sort of trying to look more I don't know I can't even explain it makeup is amazing makeup is amazing like yeah like you're trying to look more ethereal more look like aliens but in a good way in a fun way it's fun it's like costumes yeah 
It is like it's like art. art. Oh my goodness, it's like art. How how how? <laughs> but it is. Sorry. I think a lot of people would argue that. I guess like um in terms of like the vlogging community, in terms of beauty vlogging, do you think what uh, the pastels are doing is like a growing thing? Like more people are getting more creative with their makeup, especially women women of color. Yeah, I think so. I would like to think that the pastels are are adding to that. Like I think the zodiac idea was really really you know different like yeah. I don't think I've well I do see others but coming from a like a we, we apply our different traits to the look like, <laughs> it's sort of dorky but it's kind of cool at the same time like we're adding our own different spin to it so yeah I think that we are getting creative especially how we film our videos like I don't I don't want to sound very like up myself or something no. but I feel like <laughs> I just I feel like we get creative with our videos like like our even the video like the production mm. of it I mean it's nothing flashy like we're not filming in a studio or anything but we're we're making use with what we can do like I'm like I'm adding little animations with like <laughs> like a scribbly with my scribbles <laughs> my little my my paints <laughs> sort of scribbles graphics yeah. like we're doing what we can and I'm trying to make it more interesting and stuff I totally that was like the first thing that hooked me about the pastels was like the filming and the way it was all done like it was really fun it, it just it just looked like it was looked like a really like a really like avant-garde campaign for something it was like <laughs> it was amazing I guess like as a filmmaker do you feel like YouTube and vlogging and that platform um gives you more scope to like make content for people you can identify with and people who can identify with you Oh my goodness, definitely, like, especially because, like, I don't know, as a young woman of color who goes to a, a who is in a largely white sort of mm. film course, yeah, I feel like what I want to make isn't, like, digestible, or that's not even a word, is it? Like, yeah. easy to digest for, like, like, they're not really as open to the sort of content and art that I want to create, but... Mm through YouTube it sort of creates and cultivates this sort of community which I can even though it's through like the lens and like guise or filter of beauty because like mm. making beauty videos is so much easier than creating uh, like a fic short film that's fictional with a screenplay and it's just it's it's easier but it's also so much more fun to get creative with and especially because it's so like girl focused as yeah. well mm. it's like so up my alley and I feel like if I create stuff like that and show it to people in my film course they'll, they seek ways to sort of demean it or you know like invalidate it like oh so what and <laughs> That's why I kind of like YouTube because there is a community out there who do value seeing themselves being portrayed in such a different light. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, it's, I guess it's like sort of like a way to take back the market a little bit because the beauty yeah. industry is so focused, especially on white faces and mm -hmm. white people. So, I guess <laughs> vlogging is this like almost like counterculture. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I guess, um, do, in terms of building community, do you think it's important for women of colour in general to, like, have spaces to build community, like, surrounding beauty, especially, like, with the backdrop of Eurocentric beauty standards? Yeah, I think it's definitely important because from birth we weren't really taught self-love, especially when we're being compared to our white counterparts. Oh, yeah. So I think that it's 
really good to kind of reclaim that through the space of YouTube and, you know, like the online space, like, you know, how you see zines nowadays. It's, I think it's really cool and collectives and stuff. Yeah. So what was the question again? Oh, no, just like, <laughs> like I, I that was fine. Um, I mean, I guess going on from that, like, did you find it hard when you were younger um, to like find looks that you could be inspired by in terms of makeup, but also like fashion? Oh my goodness. Yes. Like, I, when I was young, I wasn't even into makeup as young because I didn't think it could be on my face. Like, I didn't know how I could apply it. Like, you, mm-hmm. I'd see, like, I don't know, Lizzie McGuire, Britney Spears. <laughs> like, I didn't know how it would look on my face. Like, the only other Asian I had to look up with, or more so, like, Filipino to look up to was Kathleen from High Five. But <laughs> even oh, then, yeah. I was still, <laughs> I was still young to wear makeup. But, like, I don't know, that representation was, Great. Like, I think I'm going to look at, um, like, old hi-fi videos from right now and, <laughs> and get some inspiration, get, yeah. like, that sort of glittery lip gloss. Mm. Oh, yeah, true. Very true. Really but, looks. Yeah. So, yeah, I, yeah, definitely growing up, it was hard because I didn't even start make, wearing makeup until, like, last year because mm. I, I got more into looking at more Asian sort of beauty gurus and understanding how I could apply that to my face. And, yeah. I guess that on that is a super good segue. Um, what other YouTubers would you recommend? Oh, okay. My utmost favorite is this half Brazilian, half um, Japanese beauty guru named Fridia, and she's mm-hmm. from LA, and she right now has a baby, so <laughs> it's really cute seeing her <laughs> baby vlogs. Oh. I mean, no, she has a baby. She's pregnant but seeing the, you know, like a, the pregnancy updates. But anyway, but also other than that, she's super cute. And I don't know, she has that sort of minimal sort of, I like her production quality anyway, but, um, and her makeup um, recommendations. But anyway, other than that, um, I look also look up to Filipina YouTube gurus like Anna Victorino, Shelby, Shelby Liquette or something, mm-hmm. uh, Michelle, um, Just Heart, like she's the big one. Uh, of course, it's Judy's life. She's the biggest out of <laughs> them all. Um, also, Monica Stalmuse, Destiny Godley, Patricia Bright. Uh, who else is there? I love everyone, to be honest. Any woman of color on YouTube. Wow. <laughs> that was like amazing. I want a list. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, thank you so much for talking to us, Chanel. Um, oh my god, thank you. It, it was so great. Um, we'll put a link to the pastels on the Facebook and the Twitter. So we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Oh my goodness. Yay. Thank you for having me. (laughs) No problem. A lot of people don't like my comedy. A lot of white people don't like my comedy. A lot of white people say this to me. Hey, Amir. Hey. Get on stage. You make your jokes about white people. You say white people this. White people that? What if I did something like that, huh? What if I got on stage and I said, yeah, black people are like this, Muslims are like that? You'd probably call me a racist, wouldn't you? And I say, yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah, you should, you should never do that. That's, that's bad for your health. They're like, well, you do that, Amir. You do that, you get on stage, you make your jokes about white people. Don't you think that's a kind of racism? Don't you think that's... Dun, dun, dun. Reverse racism. So no, 
I don't think that's reverse racism. Not because, not because I think reverse racism doesn't exist, right? If you ask some black and brown people, they'll tell you flat out there is no such thing as reverse racism. I don't agree with that. I think there is such a thing as reverse racism. And uh, I, could be, I could be a reverse racist if I wanted to. Uh, all I would need would be a uh, time machine, right? And uh, what I'd do is I'd get in my time machine, I'd go back in time to before Europe colonized the world, right? And uh, I'd convince the leaders of Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Central and South America to uh, invade and colonize Europe, right? Just occupy them, steal their land and resources, set up some kind of like, I don't know, trans-Asian slave trade where we exported white people to work on giant rice plantations in China. Just ruin Europe over the course of a couple of centuries so all their descendants would want to migrate out and live in the places where black and brown people come from. But of course, in that time, I'd make sure I set up systems that privilege black and brown people at every conceivable social, political, and economic opportunity. The white people would never have any hope of real self-determination. Just every couple of decades, make up some fake war as an excuse to go and bomb them back to the Stone Age and say it's for their own good because their culture is inferior and they, just for kicks, subject white people to colored people's standards of beauty so they end up hating the color of their own skin, eyes, and hair. If after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of that, I got on stage at a comedy show and said, hey, what's the deal with white people? Why can't they dance? <laughs> that would be reverse racism. Fumbling uh, with the mic there, but anyway, um, I guess why why did you choose to make that joke that night? What was your mindset? I guess that was actually a, a kind of an accident. Um, that joke was from my solo show, um, but we had a friend filming. That was one of our last few of our Brown Planet shows, uh, and I just I had a friend who happened to be filming that night. And I was actually on my way towards quitting comedy. So um, I just thought, okay, I'll just throw that joke in at the end of the show. Uh, and we, you know, so I had it on tape. And then, again, I put it online because I thought I was going to quit comedy. So that's how it ended up online. Uh, I guess um, now this is the interview process. Now this is where we're going to grill you. Um, what, what, what is, I guess, wh how... Is your comedy different to others? Because I don't think there are many people that speak so openly about race and, and racism in their comedy without being, I guess, that generic Russell Peters kind of ethnic humour. So why did you go, um, I guess, around, I guess, that path? Um, I think it was just based on sort of the comedy that I liked growing up. And I did like Russell Peters, you know, like when I was 17 and I heard that first Russell Peters album that leaked online. I mean, I thought it was fantastic. Um, but, you know, I'm not opposed to, you know, people talking about their own culture or, you know, joking about how they grew up or their parents or their families and stuff like that. Um, but for me, it just wasn't, you know, as a writer, like, that's just not what came to me naturally. And also, like, I just, as much as I can enjoy that comedy, the idea of doing it in front of people and having white people laugh at, you know, an accent that, you know, someone in my family or someone who's not white... Uh, might speak in like I just I could not really handle that as a performer so I've just never done it um, I've got a question as well I'm thinking about comedy as transformation and you know with the reverse racism video for instance we actually link that video to people who say that reverse racism exists 
And so I think for me, um, I'm more interested in the idea of um, transgression through accessible means, through mass media. And I suppose you embody that. Um, do you see that um, as a transformation, as a ma- means of transformation? You mean as a means of changing people's yeah, ideas? Yeah, much. Uh, not really. I, I'm not sure. Like, I think the popularity of that clip is from people who enjoy it and already agree with it. Um, and people tell me, like, very rarely, like, that they've shown it to someone that made them think a different way. But I think, especially the way social media operates now, I think people um, people are consuming content that's already catering to what they already think. Um, and I think it's very difficult to change. Um, it's very difficult to change people's opinions anyway. You know, like I've, I've, I've had a political background a long time before I did comedy. Um, and, yeah, so to think that a, you know, three-and-a-half-minute comedy video is going to change people's minds is, you know, it's kind of reaching a little bit. Um, I think what it does more is is for people who are sick of having that argument. It's, you know, it's some release and it's, you know, it's a, it's a good way to end a Facebook argument. It's just you can leave that video there and that's it. Will more three-minute videos change anything? <laughs> no, no. But, I mean, they'll people will enjoy them. That's, I mean, that's what comedians have to do is, yeah, like, I mean, I think as much as, you know, there isn't a lot of comedy necessarily that's, you know, political or conscious or whatever you want to call it. But I also do see comedians that just take themselves way too seriously and, like, really, I think, kind of overstep the mark in terms of how influential they think they are um, just because they're saying something political. And I think you just have to recognize at the end of the day you're, a, you're an entertainer. Right. And people enjoy your type of entertainment. Um, and real political change takes, you know, a lot harder work by a lot more people over a lot longer time. Do you feel, um, I guess, that people cling to people like yourself who are comics or, or entertainers that speak openly about race and racism and, and I guess, social issues and make, make you... Um, people leaders of a movement that you've not particularly um tried to be <laughs> no one's made me a leader of a movement no no but in the sense but, that trying but to yeah yeah like, point people, to you again yeah i think people cling to stuff that validates how they feel you know i did when i was growing up i clung to music and film and comedy that you know made me kind of feel normal things that validated my experience you know the majority of what was on TV or in films or music was just alien to me and made me feel more alien. So the things that I found that appealed to me, I, you know, I kind of clung to extra hard, I guess. Um, I've got a question. So um, in terms of your reverse racism clip and, say, sharing that to white people and white people, um, you know, agreeing with it and saying this is what we are like, do you think white people distinguishing themselves from, you know, saying, oh, you know, this is what we're like but I'm not like that, is that problematic in a sense? Uh, I, I mean, I think that's just always that's always going to happen, right? Like whenever you have any kind of s- systemic oppression, whether you're talking about misogyny or homophobia or whatever, like w- anyone who's part of the oppressing group that recognizes their privilege or their role or whatever, you know, th- you can either just be upfront and say, "Look, I'm part of this. I'm always going to be part of this. I have to do my best to minimize the effect that you know." my social reality has on other people and there's always going to be people who try to use it as a kind of currency of well you know i'm not 
I recognize this exists, so therefore I'm special and somehow, like, I'm not, you know, as a man, like, it, that doesn't affect anyone anymore. As a straight person, it doesn't affect anyone. As a white person, I'm not like the other white people. I'm the good person. I'm the good one, yeah. I get I'm, the, I'm the good ally or whatever it is, yeah. Uh, I guess um, something that's really interesting to me is where do you go next with, I guess, your comedy? And what are some of your aspirations, I guess, like, you see people, um, I guess, like, Ron... Ronnie Chang. Ronnie Chang going to The Daily Show and, and other comics that were around you when, when you were coming up. Where do you want to go with your comedy? Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you for pointing out my uh, relative failure compared to my... Uh, I, I, I'm not trying to point out your relative <laughs> failure. Like, I, I, I know you're, you're Hey, very... so the small people that you started with that are like way more famous than you now. <laughs> well, I, I'm not trying to do that. I, I'm just trying to ask you some hard-hitting questions. As yeah, a journalist, look, that's my look, job. Honestly, like... I. You know, people ask me that, and I think if you choose, like, if you if you're like me, you make a choice to like be a political artist. You insist you're going to say certain things. You refuse to do other things. Then you know you just kind of have to come to terms with the fact that that's not very profitable, right? Entertainment is. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The profit-driven industry, uh, and it rewards people who reflect its values. You know, And if you decide, well, you know, screw that, I'm going to, you know, represent all these other things and just have to be, you know, realistic. It's not a great, it's not a great business model. I, I remember you telling me a few months ago about um, um, an unknown, I'm not going to name the publication, unknown publication asked you to write a, a common piece about, say, the parachuting. You send that piece to them and they don't want to publish it because you put uh, a different, I guess, political um, observation and, yes. and critique to it. Yes, CNN asked me to <laughs> CNN International asked me to write about the uh, Charlie Hebdo shooting. And then after I wrote it for them, they said that uh, the guy who commissioned it said that his editor said that it, it sounded like it was justifying terrorism. And and like things like that, right, um, I guess that stops you from um, being that mainstream comic um, that people think you either should be or um, that other like uh, comics that you started with are now. Do you think, do you think that you, I guess, as a person who says I've got these certain political principles that I won't necessarily like, um, not necessarily sell out, but compromise myself? Yeah, and and again, like, you know, you are just automatically filtered out. Like, there's no, there's no shortage of you know, early thirties comedians or actors. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, for a casting agent or a writer or a director, like, like why go through the hassle of working with someone who is going to be difficult or wants changes in the script or, you know, they, you know, is threatening because, you know, you know, they're not just going to say yes to everything versus, you know, 10 other people who are willing to, to do it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and again, like, I think you just have to be realistic about that's, that's how entertainment works. Like no one's there to do artists a favor. Like you either do the job or you don't do the job.
I've been in all rap this year at the awards. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I love hip hop. Obviously. But tonight, it's all about soul. Okay. Hold on a second. I got another call. Wait a minute. No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and they name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. Yeah, I got on my overalls. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to send an Uber for you right now. Yeah, come on, be outside. And today, we have a special guest. Claire Land. Hi, everyone. She's the author of a new book entitled Decolonizing Solidarity, which talks about how non-Indigenous people can create solidarity with our First Nations people. Um, so what made you write this book, Claire? Well, I, as a student activist, I met some amazing Aboriginal people at the University of Melbourne in about 97, 98. And um, that was a moment when I started to understand that I had a relationship with colonialism. I had no engagement with Australia as a colonised place until then. And so the first step for me was um, realising that I, I had to know what had happened here. And then I started to study as much as I could about that and also get involved with a student group which was um, educating ourselves and then educating people around us about... Um, Aboriginal political struggles and uh, from there yeah I just kind of got to uh, got told some of the politics of how to be a supporter within that um, a, a supporter of Aboriginal struggles and um, yeah then it's just been a journey of wanting to know more about that so I could you know be a stronger ally myself. Um, what are some of the messages and themes you try to explore in the book? Well, firstly, it's got quite a lot of it's got a history, some history in it about the history of Aboriginal Aboriginal struggles in the southeast of Australia, which is where the book is based. Um, it's got a history of, um, of solidarity and support action um, to give people the people nowadays a sense of, I guess, our own history as supporters. And um, in terms of the ideas in the book, it's really, I guess, to discuss the dilemmas that come up in the sort of life life cycle of an ally. So particularly middle-class white people have, whom I'm one, um, there'll be a life cycle where um, you might hear an Aboriginal person speak, become incredibly passionate and like upset about the injustice and really want to do something um, and then give that a go and then hit some kind of crisis point where it's somehow you're getting the message that you're not doing it right. Um, and then... Some people will then feel upset and, and, and withdraw, still really want to be supportive but not know how to do it. And other people will stick with it for years and years and years. And so 
starting to see that life cycle happening myself and seeing Aboriginal people who'd educated me having to educate people just like me, you know, every single like new person they met, they had to do the same thing, um, made me want to um, write something that could be shared with others um, to get some of that background knowledge. Um, I remember meeting you for the first time at a, uh, I guess a, you, you held a workshop at Trades Hall about how non-Indigenous people can show solidarity and social support that isn't necessarily, I guess, centering themselves in Indigenous struggles. Um, and I guess, has this been a, a book you've been wanting to write, I guess, since the beginning of your, um, I guess, your journey along understanding and um, learning about um, Indigenous struggles? Uh, it's something that I, uh, I, I decided to to want to, to want to do a PhD on this in about 2005. So that was, I'd been involved for about seven years by then. And yeah, that's, I did intend to write something that could be shared. So that would be a book or a, a kind of handbook or something. Um, but yeah, it was, that was an amazing thing at Trades Hall. The occasion was the national sort of launch of Black Nations Rising. And I think, or the yeah, no, or the it movement was. itself. It, it was actually um, war itself. It was war um, showing, um, discussing themselves as well as showing everyone um, the the uh, the new quarterly magazine. They were mm. starting Black Nations Rising, and um, I found it was it was very interesting how um, they were having a workshop by themselves, talking about I guess their own kind of stuff, being Indigenous Australians, um, navigating identity, and then we were in the other room. Um, talking about how we can support them, which I found was a very good kind of dichotomy of, mm. and 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 kind of um, centering different spaces and mm. and how things were uh, were separated, but still for for a given purpose. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So, um, and they were just so self conscious with worries of the Aboriginal resistance, very self conscious about wanting um, you know allies to to discuss that practice of being an ally in parallel to their their discussions about their own. Struggle, so yeah, it's it was. Um, I guess nice an, another question I want to ask is, what are some of the steps you you talk about in your book about decolonizing that solidarity and um, becoming a better ally to Indigenous people um, in a in a very I guess anti Indigenous anti Black space and government. Mm. Well, I just find that um, one of the it, there's been a few a few challenges. Um, presented to to allies um, that I've seen. So, um, you know, when there's been a conversation that Aboriginal person has spoken at, um, I've often noticed that there'll be some challenges suggested, which are, one, that if you want to support Aboriginal people, you don't really need to go rushing and finding an Aboriginal person to support. The first thing is to look in the mirror and to understand your own culture, your own motivations, and um, understanding where you're from, you know, that's a really important step. And um, so that's about self-reflexiveness um, and self, self-criticism, self I guess, and, and self-knowledge and cultural knowledge um, and of yourself. And then there's also a challenge to not just be obsessed with Aboriginal people. Um, so it's to say why... You know, if you want to support Aboriginal people, what is the problem that is... What is creating the problem for Aboriginal people? And what is wrong with your own society? Because Aboriginal people have been running self-help, survival programs, um, realising amazing community-controlled spaces. And, 
you know, they're inviting us to do the same, like sort out our own society, which is so hierarchical. And particularly for me, that means that the dominant culture in Australia. So there's an invitation there to get a moral, broad, much broader moral and political framework um, than just wanting to, in a way, be redeemed of the, the guilt of inheriting colonialism um, by kind of making up with the, an Aboriginal person. I think another thing to tie into that is also knowing when to take a step back and letting Aboriginal voices be heard and letting, you know, realising when you're taking up too much space in their in their circles and letting, yeah, just letting their voices be heard. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I just, I'm learn, learning all the time and I'm involved in a little study group called Decolonize, Allies Decolonising and um, some, there's some great anarchists in that group and one of them said a little adage that I've clamped onto since, which is that when people of colour are speaking, white people need to shut up, essentially. But when people of colour are being attacked, you do the opposite. And that's, you know, so there's a balance between stepping back but also acting very powerfully when it's the right moment to do that. Put more beautiful people of colour on TV and connect viewers in ways which transcend race and unite us. That's the real Team Australia. You know, you look at the American TV, British TV, it, you know, has, uh, you know, it's got shows with different nationalities and, 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 and not just putting nationalities just for the point of difference, but creating work that caters for um, actors of different backgrounds. In my mind, I see a line. And over that line, I see green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white women with their arms stretched out to me over that line. But I can't seem to get there no how. I can't seem to get over that line. That was Harriet Tubman in the 1800s. And let me tell you something. The only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. You cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there. So hi, um, we're here with Karen Zhu. She's currently um, living in Australia, but she's an American studying marginalised communities and how they form and break apart. And she recently had um, two years experience with Teach for China, which is a non-for-profit organisation, kind of akin to the teaching programs in Australia, such as Teach for Australia, where are basically a bunch of high-performing academic types go into rural areas and teach for free. So basically, we're just trying to, I guess, unpack in this interview volunteer tourism and, I guess, the kinds of pros and cons that come along with that and also the power dynamics that can manifest within these organisations, obviously to do with race, but also class and intercultural issues within China as a specific community. So firstly, Karen... Um, I was just wondering, just generally, what were your experiences with Teach for China? <laughs> so my experiences in China as a teacher, um, like when I was in my school, when I was hanging out with my kids, that was great, and I really enjoyed myself, and I hope that my kids also really enjoyed the time that they got with me. My experiences with the organization were not so great. Um, I openly critiqued the organization while I was still a part of the organization, um, and 
there were repercussions. They tried to toss me out a few times because, you know, like once those ideas start spreading, people start questioning, like, why are we here? Are we actually doing anything? And is this treatment that we're that we are getting from the higher ups and also the treatment that our children are getting from the organization? Is it fair? Um, and, you know, a lot of times, obviously, the answer is no, it's not at all. Mm. I guess, like, um, in terms of fairness, what were the aims of this organization in general? Um, that's hard to say, because if you read, <laughs> I mean, being honest here, you know, because the mission mm-hmm. statement of the organization is always about like, oh, like we're here to serve these children who like yeah. are in some of the poorest parts of China. You know, they don't, you know, like they don't have proper nutrition. They don't have running water. They, you know, don't have this, they don't have that. To start sort of like our own baby NGOs within the organization, to start our own initiatives, um, to be like, you know, you can solve these problems. You can do this. You can do that. Um, and really placing sort of the locus of the problem on the fellows and also on the students and not necessarily on the larger structural issues that we had no chance of addressing. We had no power in addressing. Yeah. I mean, like the trust fund guy who started it. Is that indicative of the kind of people who get involved with this kind of volunteer tourism? It very much is. Um, I mean, at least within Teach for China on the foreign side, on the American side of the program, mm-hmm. you know, more than half of the fellows were wealthy and white. Um, and of the other half, um, predominantly American born Chinese, so ABC, ABCs, mm-hmm. and then a few black people. But everyone graduated from one of the top universities in America, probably from one of the top 16 universities in America, which kind of tells you what sort of class that they're looking at. Basically, all these bougie motherfuckers from different backgrounds <laughs> coming yeah. to poor rural China, where many of these children are Chinese ethnic minorities. And that's part of the discrimination that they face. And that's part of their economic exploitation. And then this organization behind us keeps on saying, you have the answers, you should start these initiatives and these baby NGOs to figure out these kids problems. And like, I guess not much happens because the like skill difference between like, you know, newly new graduates from these like Ivy League schools, and actual teachers on the ground is just like too big a gulf. None of us on the foreign side and basically none of the people on the Chinese fellow side spoke the language that was actually being spoken in the classrooms, which was not Mandarin. It was not Mandarin. It was the local language. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, like no one came from teaching programs and no one came from a natural teaching background. Um, whereas, you know, you have top local teachers who have been teaching for 10, 20 years and who know the sort of state exams and whatnot through and through. They also know these children through and through and the cultural context through and through. But, you know, like the money that was that Teacher China would raise millions every year in order to support the program. Um, and, you know, like there were so many ways that the money could have been spent that could have actually helped these children's lives. Like, for example, bulking up the pay of local teachers so that way they would stay in the poor, like, more rural areas instead of flocking to the rich city schools. Um, Or, you know, providing the funds for basic programs that would address the children's nutritional needs um, and, and, like, their sort of transportation needs. It's like economically with all the millions of dollars funneling and I guess from America mostly and I guess maybe from rich Chinese, um, like, where did the money go? Was it mostly just to, like, subsidize the costs of like i guess fellows who were living there or was it mostly just advertising but most of the money supporting fellows went to foreign fellows because things like covering our airfares um to and from america um 
things like getting our visas, which were very, very expensive. I mean, I guess that's the tourism aspect in the... Yeah. Um, and then on the fourth side, at least one third of the cohort dropped out. On the Chinese side, I think the retention was a bit better, but not by much, because I think over time people will eventually realize, like, oh, I actually can't do anything to help these kids. If anything, my presence might be actually making things worse. Um, and that my presence is part of this larger system where, you know, the people who do have power, you know, first, like, to give sort of a recap of nonprofit industrial non profit industrial uh, complex, you know, mm -hmm. it starts with how wealthy capitalists steal wages to make profits. And then the, this money is diverted out of public funds and taxes and into tax sheltered foundations. So like Teach for China or Teach for America and whatnot. Um, and then sort of an offshoot of, an offshoot of that is that they then control dissent through the grant making processes because you have to write grants and the people on the ground have to write grants, have to try to get money somehow. Um, and then that in return makes money. There's a payout. There's a benefit to the system. Um, so teacher China was very much a part of that. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess what was the relationship between teach for China, the Chinese government and also the rural schools? Like, was there a positive relationship or was it just manifestly <laughs> negative? <laughs> It was one of those things where I think um, Teach for China looks very good and sounds very good on paper, but um, Teach for China has served many, many regions in China, and I think there's only been one region that has consistently asked for Teach for China back. Um, all the other regions, it was after a few years, we stopped getting the visas, they started kicking us out. Oh, um, wow. I guess... Um my next, I guess, like, basically, the picture of volunteer tourism and vo or voluntourism that most people know is, like, I guess, a really a picture of, like, white saviorism. So, like, young white people go to, like, nondescript African countries and, like, do menial <laughs> tasks. But I think something that I think what's more unique about your story about Teach for China is that there is sort of this, like, um, it's, it's not just white people saving brown people or black people. It, it, there are people from Chinese background who are going in and might be getting more disillusioned with the process. I guess, was that your experience? Did you find that, like, sort of, you were more critical because of your identity? A lot of the Chinese fellows found my critiques very surprising, and many of them yeah. did not agree with my critiques, because mm -hmm. I do come from marginalized background from within America. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, the Chinese fellows were at the top of the social pyramid within China. Um, mm -hmm. Personally, for me, one of the things that surprised me about the experience was how much bitterness I started feeling towards mm. wealthy Chinese people, um, not just those within my own program, but the tourists that I would see in the region um, and how they would mm. sort of treat the children and they would treat just the locals and the local um, the local culture as products and as products to be consumed. That is really interesting to see. I mean, I guess how... It does function differently domestically, I guess. And I, I think that's probably the same experience that a lot of people have even within, like, Teach for Australia, which is a very similar program here. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism, um, oh, yeah. to put it frankly. Um, and it, I, yeah, it's just really disheartening to see. That's like, that's all I can say, because yeah. monkey see, monkey do. At the end of the day, it's the same it's the same few groups of people within societies, between societies that continue to get screwed over. Oh yeah. 
I mean, I guess finally to finish up, what advice would you give to anyone who wanted to get involved with this sort of work? I mean, would it just be a flat out don't get involved or is there like, is there potential to be critical within these organizations to change them? There's not potential to be critical within these organizations to change them. I can flat out say that um, because I tried um, and they are very good at shutting you down. They are very good at trying to scare people into silence. Um, mm -hmm. So just don't do it. With this, I do have to know, I've had so many conversations with people like asking me being like, hey, Karen, like I'm thinking of doing Teach for China or doing something similar to Teach for China. Uh, mm -hmm. Like what would be your advice, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the only way that I found that you can really um, dissuade people with fair regularity is to tell them that this will impact your future career and not in good ways and not in ways you think. I guess finally, did you find that, I mean, like, did you find, do you find like at least your experience in being critical has allowed you to like send out a message about these kinds of organizations in like a positive and meaningful way to divert, um, I guess, productivity and like resources into the right directions? For me, uh, no. Sort of trying to counterbalance the effects of these programs, it is really hard because so many people just want to feel like they're doing something good. Um, and that's part of, you know, like the whole system of how things work with the sort of voluntourism. Mm. Is that what it's called? Voluntourism, yeah. yeah. With this voluntourism. Um, and um, it's important that these conversations keep happening and that, like, the scope of these conversations continue to widen so that... So that way more mainstream publications pick up on these conversations so that more people are including these conversations because I think that's the only way for these the awareness to spread more and more because these NGOs come out and be like, hey, yeah, so uh, what we did wasn't really super effective. <laughs> that's never going to happen. You know, like Teach for China, or not Teach for China, but Teach for America has spent literally millions upon millions upon millions of dollars into their marketing, into their so-called research divisions to prove that they're an effective organization. All right, but anyways, we've got to leave. To We're going. We're going now. Okay, okay. Right, bye. Bye, listeners. <laughs>